What does God want you to do more than anything else? What does God expect of you in terms of your life? One way to answer that question, I think, maybe to be to, might be to ask another question, and that is, what is the most repeated commandment in Scripture? If you look at the Bible and just start looking through, and I didn't do that, but, but I pose this question in the context of what you know about the Bible and what we understand about what the Bible teaches. Is there anything that God just over and over again says that he wants you to be, that he wants you to have, that he wants you to do? Well, I would think that one of the answers to that, uh, and the answers are, I think the right answer is not about a prohibition against, uh, against uh, money, that has to do with money or sexual power or the aspect of what you do in terms of a moral life. All of that is found in Scripture, and those commandments are there, um, and they're very implicit. Well, one way to answer that question, I think, is, that, is to recognize that God wants you to be happy. And that's expressed in different ways. There are not many passages where God says, I want you to be happy, or he commands you to be happy. And we'll talk a little bit about this aspect of our thinking, our, con- our concept of happiness. But it is ex- that concept is expressed in several different ways in Scripture, over and over again. God tells us to praise him. God tells us to not be afraid, but to be courageous. He tells us to give thanks. And he also tells us to rejoice. Not just once, but over and over and over again in the Bible, God says to his people, rejoice. Well, the idea of rejoicing, of having joy in our life, is connected with the aspect of personal happiness, the well-being that we, uh, that we either have or that we don't have, that we experience or that we don't experience. Uh, our... Um, our theme uh, throughout the year is to looking at the book of Philippians, and though we're in the middle of August, I'm just now getting around to, to uh, addressing what is our theme for this particular month, and that's Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So I want to take a couple minutes to, this morning and sort of introduce this aspect of rejoicing or joy, and we'll talk about it, the Lord willing, uh, more in the month. But Paul's letter to the Philippians, I think we probably already recognize this, is punctuated with the call for God's people to rejoice. The Apostle Paul uses Greek words for joy and rejoicing um, uh, over 16 times in 104 verses, he says rejoice. And even if we take the concept of joy and gladness and apply it to the circumstances of Paul's life, it becomes even more impressive of a lesson in this book, the aspect that we ought to be joyful. Uh, we remember that Paul's writing this particular letter to the Philippians uh, while under Roman custody as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. In that context of the, where his life had taken him, there were a lot of obstacles to joy that were all around him. And certainly we could recognize that from the physical perspective. That if Paul was joyful, and certainly he expresses that he was joyful here as he wrote, writes this letter and tells them to be joyful, he was doing it under adverse circumstances. He was not doing it because it was easy to be joyful or because it was natural to rejoice. And that sort of brings it back to home to us, at least from the standpoint of what I want to look at even this morning. How how can a Christian today obey the command to rejoice? How can a Christian today, when we see our world changing around us and maybe in, in many ways getting worse and worse right before our eyes, how can we be joyful in these circumstances? I hope that we'll have the opportunity to study uh, this particular command in the context of Philippians, because I think that's the most important way to look at that. But this morning I want to take a more general look at how the Bible treats the subject of joy, or uses that terminology. 
both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Joy in the Bible is a prominent subject. As I mentioned, there, it is expressed in a lot of different language. And certainly when we think about this aspect of God's people, or the situation God's people is in, that makes sense. That if God's people have God as their leader, if He is in control of their lives, if He is blessing them, then certainly that creates an environment for where they ought to be happy. They ought to be joyful. And so I'll take a couple of look at this. In the Old Testament, the most common term in the Hebrew language is the word simcha, which is often connected many times with external natural circumstances that create joy and is expressed outwardly. So the Old Testament is filled with passages where God calls on his people to rejoice and then to express that joy through clapping their hands, through singing and shouting, even through playing instruments in the Old Testament. Joy is translated, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew scriptures, from several different Hebrew words. In fact, it makes it almost um, impossible, or at least rather difficult, to arrive at a concise definition through a single Old Testament word for the, for the, for the concept and for the, uh, the presence of joy. But I want to consider a couple of distinctions that stand out to me from the standpoint of looking at what God says about joy, both in the Old and New Testament, and then see how they're connected together. One way in which the joy is expressed, or to be expressed, a time in which joy is made known in the Old Testament, is uh, the joy of God's blessing. That joy is used to describe the human reaction to all different types of experiences or events that were considered to be times in which it was right to be glad. The birth of a child on Monday morning (laughs) is a time to rejoice. And so it was, this aspect of occasions. The birth of children, 113 Psalm talks about the birth of a child being a joyful event. A marriage ceremony where two people join their lives together. You go there to do that, you go there to celebrate, to have joy. The gathering of a harvest, the bringing it into your barns. The time of year when you begin to recognize that God is blessing you, and that becomes very evident. Those were celebrations among the Jews. Times in which they would be joyful. And joy then, the concept of joy, was at its most basic level, the human response to a natural event that made people glad, or that made people happy. So there are things that make us sad, there are things that make us happy. And those events then bring joy. They were considered by God's people, rightfully so, as being the evidence that God was blessing his people, that God was active in their life, that he was doing something in their behalf, and therefore they were joyful. So the idea of joy many times in the Old Testament is that was these were circumstances that were created by the activity of God. Not only were there times when God didactically told his people, now I want you to rejoice here, but there were times in which it would be natural to rejoice because he had done something for them and he produced joy in the hearts and lives of his people by creating these, these favorable circumstances in their behalf. David rejoiced in the psalm because God had delivered him from his enemies, the 63rd Psalm, over and over again. In what we sometimes call these imprecatory psalms, David, as a psalmist, even calls upon God to execute judgment on his enemies. And if, when he does that, he will have joy in his life. So in the context of the happy events, joy is presented as the natural emotional response to the blessing of God. Fundamental to this is this aspect of the historical acts of God. When God would command joy in the Old Testament among his people, many times it was connected with what he had already done. And so there were things that brought joy to the mind of God's people when they realized this is how God acted. We might consider in the context of this uh, the very basic activity of creation, the natural creation. 
You know, the Bible in the Old Testament describes that creation itself rejoices over God. The sun, the pastures, the meadows, the things you see around us. That The psalmist says that they sing with joy. In the 19th Psalm, verse 5, it says that the sun runs its course from the east to the west. He runs that, that it runs that course with joy or joyfully runs the course. Uh, so the sun comes up smiling. You ever seen the Jimmy Dean advertisement? You know that guy with a big, he's got a big smile. The sun's always smiling as it runs its course. I'm not sure that's what God meant. But the idea here is that the creation itself rejoices in the fact that God has brought them into being and cares for them. In the 65th Psalm, the grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and they sing. The idea here is that the creation itself is singing the praises of God. And so we talk about the glory of God being manifested in the physical creation. It goes beyond that is the aspect that not only do they praise God, but they're joyful to praise God. They're happy about it. You think about that in the context of God. Is God happy or is God sad? Is God a happy God? Does God rejoice himself? You know, that's an interesting question. You look at how the scriptures describe it and there's a sense in which we have to recognize that God is filled with rejoicefulness and happiness himself. Maybe found in the implications of in the implications of the words in the very beginning in Genesis that God created something and he said, this is good. He got the end and said, this is very good. This is just what I want. I'm glad about this. And God is glad or rejoices over the righteousness of his people. When they do the right thing, God is pleased in that. So the idea of a smiling God, so to speak, the idea that God is glad, is important to the discussion of what He commands us to be. We are to be like Him. A God that's happy about what He's doing and that's satisfied in what He's doing, who has a people that are never satisfied with what He's doing, doesn't make any sense. And so fundamental to this idea of joy in the Old Testament is that God has acted in the history to show people that He's doing something, to show people that He's doing something, and that these are occasions of joys. So Israel's deliverance from Egypt was a time of shouting and crying out to God, thanksgiving. The return of the exiles from the captivity were occasions for gladness in Jeremiah chapter 31. There's also in the, in the Old Testament this aspect that joy is, is found in, the, in God's presence. God's people are joyful when they recognize that God is with them. And the Psalms speak more of joy than any other Old Testament book. And often the joy described in the, in the book of Psalms is the joy of his people when they come to worship him, as they approach God in worship. The 122nd Psalm, I rejoice with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. This is a time of rejoicing that we're going to go worship God. So as you approach God, you do it with joy in your heart. You do it with, you see, gladness in your heart. In the 16th Psalm, verse 11, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, the psalmist says. When I'm with you, I'm joyful. When I know that you're with me, then that's an occasion for joy. So joy in the Old Testament characterized this aspect of the environment of corporate worship. When Israel would come together, the Israelites were not only to go through certain functions and do things obviously the way God wanted them to do. You offer this lamb this way, you you bring your sheaves and you make this sacrifice just the way that I want it. You do it at the right place. All of those things we've looked at as we've studied through the Pentateuch uh, uh, of of the Old Testament. But incorporated within those very clear, concise commands about the, 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 the demonstrate God's desire for obedience, there is a call to rejoice. Not only to do it, but to do it with happiness in your heart. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 16, you shall observe the feast of the tabernacle seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. Notice that it is associated with the time of harvest, a time when you naturally would be happy. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite and the stranger, the fathers and the widows who were in your... Everybody is what he's saying. Everybody's supposed to do what? Seven days, he says, you will be happy and you will rejoice. So he says, so you shall surely rejoice. Now the psalmist says in the 119th Psalm that even the law of God is a source of joy. He says in verse 4, I have rejoiced in all the ways of your testimonies as much as in all riches. You know, if you won the lottery, how would you feel about that? What, what David is saying is that I won the lottery when you gave me your law. I rejoiced in it more than all the riches that I could possibly have. The fact that you have spoken to me and your word brings me joy. And I think about that sometimes when I have to force myself to open my Bible and read what God says. Uh, that I have to discipline myself to bring that about. So this aspect you see uh, is, is, is the idea of rejoicing, rejoicing in the presence of God. Well, what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about joy? The most common Greek noun that translated joy is the word kara, uh, and it means delight or it means gladness. Sometimes, Many times it's translated by the English word gladness. It's the verb that's used in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 uh, in its verb form, uh, kairo, which means to be cheerful. Vine says it means to be calmly happy or well off. So he says you need to be happy in the sense that you need to be cheerful. When? He says, all the time. Well, what does that mean? Is God saying, you know, you take your finger and you push up and walk around and you make a smile on your face and you don't take it down? Are we supposed to be smiling all the time? Or is that experientially possible for a person in their life? Well, again, I think we're able to answer that question. We'll talk more about what I think the answer to that question biblically is. But we're able to answer that question by understanding that in the New Testament, the concept of joy is, as many things are, amplified and expanded to a, to a deeper degree. But what we see in the Old Testament lays the groundwork for what we see being revealed to us about, from the Old Testament. And joy is a fundamental response to God's blessing. It comes from God. It's associated with God's presence within the context of how the word is used in the New Testament as well. We start with the idea of God's presence. God's presence is the time in which people should rejoice. Now, where are you going to see that in the New Testament? When I thought about that and looking at that, I thought, you know, that didn't have to go very far. You look at the book of Luke's description. Luke's description of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus on the earth. Now, this is God coming to man, right? This is this aspect of God coming down to us and how the, how the, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal it to us. And over and over again in Luke's description is one joyful occasion after another. That the idea of joy, you see, is, it, it defines the very context of the events. At the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 verse 14, the angel says to Zechariah and Elizabeth, He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Before Jesus ever gets there, what's the occasion? In the birth of the prophet, there was to be joy at his birth, and everybody's going to be happy about this. The angel's greeting to Mary, and the word greeting there, when it says the angel greeted Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, is from the same root word from which you get the word joy, chare, followed by the aspect of highly favored. You are highly favored, which means you are blessed or that you should be happy because you're blessed. It's from the same word family in the Greek. 
It may very well be taken as a command to Mary that as she's given the introduction, the, the information that she's going to have a child, even in these very difficult circumstances, that you are to rejoice because God is acting in your life. God's bringing something to you. He's blessing you. So you are highly favored among women. And they were all familiar with the story of the shepherds in the night when they're told about the birth of their Savior occasion of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, the angel says. Matthew tells us later on when the Magi came to see the Lord in the, uh, in, in the, uh, there as the infant in the house that they were overjoyed when they saw him. So you look at all those events. God coming to man. What, what, what kind of events is it? It's a time of joy. Now, obviously... God's coming into men isn't always a joyful occasion. When he comes in judgment against the wicked, there's nothing joyful about that. But the idea of God coming to man in the presence, coming to the presence of man is a time that's associated with joy. There's also the aspect, you see, that is associated with God's activity in salvation. God himself is seen as rejoicing at the restoration and salvation of that which is lost. Luke chapter 15 may be the easiest place for us to see that. Jesus describes in this parable a shepherd who goes out and finds, he's got a hundred sheep, he leaves the nine nine, he goes out and finds one, and when he finds that sheep, what's he do? He, he's rejoicing, you see. He sings and cries and jumps up and down and shouts out because he's found this one that was lost. He invites his friends in and says, look what happened, I found my sheep. And he rejoices with his friends. In the text, Jesus compares this to the joy in heaven if one sinner repents. Now when he says that heaven's repenting, who's he talking about? I mean, heaven is rejoicing. Who's he talking about there? You know, in the, in the next one, when he tells a story about the woman who loses the coin, she has ten of them, she loses one, she finds it, she invites her friends in, and, and, and they have a party as well. They rejoice. It says that the joy is in, as, as joy is in the presence of the angels of God. So the angels are rejoicing over one sinner repents. I believe in the context what it's implying there is not only the angels rejoicing, but God's rejoicing. Or more to the point that the angels are rejoicing because God is rejoicing. So those who are angels rejoice because God is happy. Now, what's that mean to us who are not angels, who are a little lower than the angels, who are actually the recipients of that salvation? Should we be rejoicing? So those who are with God celebrate the finding of the lost. And that certainly is punctuated and may be brought to a final look when the father opens up his arms and receives his rebellious son back from the far country. Puts a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and says, you were lost and now you're found. You were gone and you're back. You were dead and you're alive. And what's the father do? He throws a party. And what's the, what is the real, I think, uh, what we might think of as the uh, counter story to the parable of the lost son? Is it not the older brother who stands by and looks at all this going on, sees all this rejoicing, all this happiness, and says, uh, I can't be happy about this. I can't be joyful about this. And the father's joy over the rebellious son returning is the most vivid picture of joy, maybe in all of the New Testament, and yet the emphasis of the parable falls on the unjoyful and complaining older brother who refuses to share in that joy. What's God telling us? He's telling us, I'm happy, you need to be happy. If that's what joy is all about. It's the character and the attitude of God towards what he's done that is brought into the life of the individual who participates in that and says, because you, I am joyful, you need to be joyful too. We're not always that way, are we? So what's God tell us? Rejoice. Over and over again, he's telling us you need to rejoice. You need to be joyful. You need to be like I am. 
This point, I think, is made in Matthew's parable of the talents when the two or three, when two of the three servants are obedient and they take that which is given to them and they make more and and they're rewarded. The, the master says, "Enter into the joy of the Lord." Now that's their reward. Now they're given the talents that they made profit for, and the one you see who had originally had ten ends up with a lot more, and the one who had five ends up with a lot more. But in the text itself, when it talks about the aspect of what God was going to, what the master was going to do for them, for their faithfulness, the reward is joy. The reward is joy. So we think about joy in heaven and what God's going to do for us later. It's going to make us joyful. But in the context of both the parable and everything that God says about life here, what he's telling us is that that reward is for right now. I reward you for your faithfulness because I'm going to provide for you joy. And he invites us to share in his emotions about this. The joy of the Lord. Now that leads us to this third aspect here. That the joy in the Bible is a fruit of the Spirit of God. We know that from Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. It's second in the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Who could argue with that being first? The fruit of the Spirit is love. And the next one is joy. I don't know if there's any significance to their order. I think maybe that there is. But it's hard to put it down further in the list, isn't it? When God puts it there. God provides the joy that he commands. And that's fascinating about God in so many ways. That God commands us to be this way, to do this. And whenever he gives us a command, whenever he tells us that we need to be this way or we need to do this, he provides the means whereby we get it accomplished. It's not like we've got to pull it out of our hat and we have to force ourselves to do it. Or that this is not spiritually, you see, a natural element of what God has doing for us. It is a fruit of the Spirit. That means if the Spirit is going to do something in our lives, one of the natural things it will do is provide joy. Now that's not a mystical, inexplicable gift from God. It's not that we come out of the waters of baptism and all of a sudden we don't have any more problems, we don't feel any more sadness, and there's no more mourning. In the very context of describing the child of God, Jesus said, Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows. And I find it interesting that in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus is the man of sorrows. In Psalm 35, he is the one who was given, anointed with the oil of gladness above all his other brothers. So what was Jesus? Was he a sad guy or was he a happy guy? Was he joyful or was he unjoyful? The Bible says both. That he was certainly a man who was acquainted with grief. But when it came to the spiritual mission God had given him, his life was punctuated by joy. So joy is not a mystical, inexplicable gift. It comes through the knowledge of the activity of God. It comes to us in the New Testament the same way it came to God's people in the Old Testament. That God provided for them the opportunity to see what he was doing. And when they saw what he was doing, then they were joyful. They knew that the relationship itself was the avenue of joy. So the Ethiopian understood the message, obeyed the command, and went on his way rejoicing, you see. That's the natural aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Real quickly, there are three concepts of joy that I want us to to, to consider here. And I don't know if you agree with me on this or not from the standpoint of how to look at it. But as I look at comprehensively what the Bible says about joy... Often what we say is that, the, is that there's a difference between joys and happiness. We often say that joy is not happiness. Happiness depends on circumstance. It's in the word, right? Happiness, happenings. So the idea that you're happy when certain things happen. So happiness depends on circumstances. But joy transcends that. 
Joy is, you see, a, a feeling of well-being that goes beyond that we can be joyful even in unhappy circumstances. So a person could be unhappy and still be joyful. And there's a sense in which that certainly is true. God promises us joy, but He does not promise us happiness in that, as we look at it in that context. But possibly when we make that statement and we leave it there, that's not comprehensive enough. We oversimplify sometimes, and because we oversimplify, we miss the truth. The, all three concepts of, of these concepts are, uh, of joy are found in the context of Scripture. Joy comes from good circumstances, doesn't it? We shouldn't dismiss the aspect that the Bible describes joy as a human response to a variety of occasions that we recognize as good. Friendships and weddings and tasting good food. The Bible talks about enjoying that. We are made glad. We sing. We shout for joy. We rejoice in the event itself. In fact, we very well recognize that this is a good event because it makes me feel this way. This is not a bad event because of the way it makes me feel emotionally. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, He made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. I know, the wise man says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So what's the writer of Ecclesiastes saying? Enjoy life. There's things in life that make you happy. That's good. God created it that way. So joy does come from the events of human endeavor. Feasting and marriage and victory and military endeavors. Certainly that's the aspect of what God says about joy. And what I think is interesting is that the Bible uses those very events as metaphors to describe to us what spiritual joy is. You enjoy a wedding? Is that a time for, for, for celebrating? Jesus is going, is going, invites us to a wedding. We're his bride. So we should be joyful about that. The idea of the, of the feast and the, and the things that you see, the times in which people would really have a good time, so to speak, are used as metaphors for spiritual joy. Secondly, joy... Sometimes it describes that which comes after bad circumstances. The 30th Psalm, verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Powerful image, isn't it? I'm suffering now. I'm sad. But what's going to happen? The sun's going to come up. It's going to get better. In verse 11, he says about God, You have turned from me for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. There are a lot of biblical texts you see where joy and rejoicing are contrasted with suffering and what the message is is that suffer now but later on you will have joy. That which is sorrowful now will be turned into joy. Weeping is replaced with rejoicing. But they're not experienced simultaneously in this concept. You have mourning now and then you have joy. In the Psalm, in Psalm 51 verse 8 that's what God... David says about his sin. You hear my joy. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. He's, been, he's sinned against God and he's asking God for forgiveness. And he's saying, I don't feel good about this. My conscience is bearing down upon me. You're breaking my bones with all this guilt. Forgive me so that I can be joyful. Now, I couldn't be joyful until he was forgiven. He wasn't anticipating any joy until he was forgiven. So it would come afterwards. The captives in Babylon could, could not sing their songs of joy, of rejoicing while they were in exile. 137 Psalm. They called on us to sing, but we could not sing. Why? Because we were under the, the heavy hand of God. This wasn't a time for singing. But then in the 126th Psalm, 
The psalmist says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. You see, things have changed now. Before they were mourning and they were sorrowful. Rightfully so. It wasn't a time, you see, for being joyful. Jesus said that very thing about the aspect of fasting. Well, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a time... There's a, there's a time for fasting, but then there's a time for rejoicing after that. And so the idea here is that, is that joy many times is presented in the Scriptures as that which comes after mourning. Jesus said that in John chapter 16 to his disciples, didn't he? He said, you're going to weep and lament. You're going to be sorrowful. While the world is rejoicing, you're going to be crying. But there's coming a time real soon when you will see me again, when they will be weeping and you will be rejoicing. He said, I'm going to turn it around. He prays it to a woman who's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as the child is born, then she's happy. The joy has been, the, the sorrow has been turned into happiness. And that's the concept. What it indicates unto us that joy vanquishes sorrow. These two do not exist in that concept, do not exist simultaneously. The joy is awaiting for God to do something. It's an anticipation of what God will provide for us. And certainly we recognize in that that not every occasion is a time for joy. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. Not every occasion is a time for joy. So when God says rejoice always, he's not saying every, every situation should make you happy. What he's recognizing is that there's the concept of joy in every of, in all of those events, whether we have to wait for it or whether, as it says in the last con- this concept, that we can experience it simultaneously with bad circumstances. Now, this concept is connected with the previous one. It rests in the hope of God's promise that God will do something in the future that he's promised us. And so, but it goes further. It means that a Christian has the opportunity to be joyful even in the midst of suffering because of what God has said and what God has done. Those two things can run simultaneously, can they? Can a person be joyful at the death of their child? Can a person be joyful when their world is crushing out around them? The concept primarily developed in the New Testament clearly more in the teaching of the Apostle Paul than anywhere else. And that brings us back to this passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul was joyful even when he's suffering. One author called it Paul's joy a notwithstanding joy. You know, notwithstanding this, I'm joyful. It's a joy that comes in spite of bad circumstances. And so he was imprisoned. He was being afflicted. All these things that were going on in his life and yet he was able to find joy in that. How? Because he recognized the presence and the activity of God. His hope rested in the fact that God was doing something and had done something that Paul was aware of and that God, you see, had provided for him his presence. I will not leave you. I will not desert you. In that sense, you see, this joy, this notwithstanding joy, is a deeper emotion than just circumstantial happiness, as we said before. But it's also more than just this aspect, I've got to wait for something. And sometimes that's the way you live our lives. You happy about being a Christian? Yeah, I'm going to go to heaven one day. Are you joyful? Yeah, I'm going to go there one day. I know. All this suffering is going to be replaced with joy. Is that true? Certainly it's true. There's no more joyful perspective that I'm going to be with God one day and all this suffering is going to be over. But the call to rejoice in the New Testament goes deeper than that. It says that I have the opportunity to be joyful now. In fact, that joy is... Not an option. He commands it. 
First Peter chapter one verse six, and I'm out of time here. We'll, we'll just get through this quickly, and maybe we'll return to it another time. Peter says, "In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love." Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter isn't saying you need to just be happy because you're suffering. There's a sense in which that's true if we recognize that our suffering is a sharing in the suffering of Christ. But Paul wasn't joyful, Peter wasn't joyful because they were afflicted, but because their affliction could serve the spiritual purposes of God. It could test their own faith and make them stronger. And in the end, what Peter says is that you're rejoicing because you're saved. Salvation is the activity of God. If joy is the fruit of the Spirit, it's made possible even in the midst of suffering. Though our hope and confidence in God who works salvation, you see, may at times wane. Certainly what God's provided for us is an enormous asset in a world of suffering that God can create for us and does create for us the only conditions by which you and I can be happy. I want you to hold on to that idea. We're going to try to come back to it a little bit, maybe another lesson. God is the only one who can provide for you the environment, the conditions whereby you can be happy. We don't always believe that. And some of our greatest struggles come as a result because we do not act upon that. But that's the witness of the biblical text. God knows what's best for you and your happiness depends upon what he says and what he does and what he's done. When God restores the fortunes of of Zion, the psalmist says, then there is rejoicing. When the shepherd finds the one sheep that was lost, then there's rejoicing. When God establishes his kingdom, Jesus says, or Paul says that the kingdom is righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. When God establishes his kingdom, then there's the environment for true joy. The joy is rooted in God's identity of the creator of all that's good and that he provides everything that's good. So who can be joyful? And this is where we close with that. Who can be joyful? God's people. They can be joyful. And that's what Jesus says. I bring you a joy that you can't understand. It's beyond passing. In the world you have tribulation. I bring to you joy and that the world can't bring you this joy. I'm giving you something they cannot have. And I would suggest to you in that context of John chapter 16, Jesus was talking about salvation. He was talking about God's activity, you see, to provide in his kingdom the environment where you and I can be saved. And so that's why Paul says rejoice. But he doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Because that's the only place you can really truly rejoice, is in the Lord. Are you in the Lord? Come to him. Be his child. Be a citizen in his kingdom. Put yourself in submission to his commandments. Share in his emotions. God is a glad God. Share in his gladness. Come into the joy of the Lord. How? By being saved. By understanding that God is working. His activity is to bring you into a relationship with him. Be saved. Like the Ethiopian. Understand that this text is talking about Jesus. He suffered for me. Well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Nothing if you believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They went down into the water. They came back out. And the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. You want to do that this morning? We can help you do that. While we stand and while we sing.